kind words. Sit down. I speak here. Sit down. Sit down. I speak here every week. <laughs> I speak here every week. We don't need to go through those. Uh, we love you guys. Hey, uh, first of all, I want to talk about the song that apparently never dies. I'll tell you what I mean by that in a moment, but it is an honor. We have some great folks here from Eden Prairie Assembly God Church, who has been one of our greatest churches in all the world to this school, and uh, Pastor Jack Perrin and your leadership team. Uh, would everybody here, they took a field trip, uh, the seniors, they took a field trip to our chapel today. Can I have all our friends from Eden Prairie, would you guys stand up real quick? It is great to see you. My goodness. Big field trip. Are you taking them to Chick-fil-A when you're done here? So this is great. And it's a double, double portion, double blessing. Almost 20 years ago, 2000, I formed a friendship with a, an incredible man through our emails. This is back when it was dial-up internet, you know, for a while. Um, phone lines. And through a supernatural series of events, um, a man named Tom Berkman came into my life. He was the chairman of the board of deacons and the head of the search committee at Grand Rapids First Assembly of God. And uh, Tom and Mary Beth Berkman were just um, the backbone of that great church. And I ended up becoming the senior pastor of that great church at age 38. I can't believe it. I don't even listen to people who are 38. And so I'm 57 now. I got 38. How did you even listen to me back then? But I served there. And then about a year and a half after I was there, he pulled me aside and said he got a phone call from our mutual dear friend, Gordon Anderson, and was invited to become the um, head of academics uh, or the provost, as we call our leader of that at the university and served here how many years, Tom? 16 years and was the founder of the graduate school, if I have all my data right. It is so great to welcome back uh, a former heartbeat of this school, Tom Berkman, former academic uh, chief officer of this school, founder of the grad school. Tom, would you stand up real quick? He's a part of Eden Prairie. We welcome you back and we honor you today. Wow. All that you just saw with the graduate school and where Dr. Brathwaite has taken this to the next is built on your shoulders, Tom, and we are so appreciative of your work. So the song that never dies, 134 years ago, a 26-year-old man, I think his name was last name Boberg, uh, B-O-B-E-R-G, he's from Sweden, didn't speak a lick of English, writes a poem and a melody in 1885, not 1985, that's, my, that's when I was a youth pastor back in 85. This is 1885. The guy writes a poem, puts a little Swedish melody to it, and it's a song that would not die. It was then translated by a person from Germany into German, this poem, and this little uh, melody. And then it was translated into Russian. And then finally, a missionary named Stuart Hines translated it into English. He was from the UK and took this Russian, German, and Swedish song and melody and finally put it into English. And it's a song that never dies. It's a song we sang. It's 134 years old, written by a 26-year-old, that song, How Great Thou Art. I met the song when it was about 90, back in the mid-70s, uh, 1970s, back in the 1900s. I'm, I know I'm throwing a lot, of, a lot of centuries at you from yesteryear, but... Um, that song is powerful, 
And it just never seems to lose its, its hit, its pop. It just was, when, I, when it's sung well, sung from the heart, uh, singing how great thou art, then sings my soul. But that thing, that thing's 134 years old. Can you imagine at 26, you write a poem, you write a little song, a little jingle, and 134 years from now, I didn't do the math to figure out what 134 years is from today, but can you imagine somebody singing that? You never know what is stirring in your soul. You never know what's stirring in your mind that's going to live for the ages. All right, we're going to be in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Now, I'm pretty much out of time, but we're going to do a little bit of this um, as best we can for a few minutes. Um, I want you to remember this statement. If you play the bigger game, you will play the better game. If you play the bigger game well, if you play the bigger game, you will play the better game. I know it sounds like we're in a locker room, we're talking to a team. I want to break it down and, and broaden the application beyond sports and talk about life, talk about faith, talk about our leadership, talk about the kingdom for just a moment. I love uh, this individual, 2 Kings chapter 20. It's my favorite name. I laughed at it as a little kid, Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat. I remember being like seven or eight, and my, I got the giggles with my brother, Jehoshaphat. And for some reason, it just stuck in my head. That's a bizarre name. I, I pastored, I dedicated probably 500 children in my life. I never, ever, ever dedicated Jehoshaphat at the altar of a baby's name. So it was like a one-off Great Bible history name. Uh, glad that no one's naming their kid that today, putting that on them. But he's one of the iconic figures in the Old Testament, one of the iconic kings, king of Judah, the, or the southern kingdom of Israel after the divide, after Solomon's death. He's the great, great grandson of Solomon, the great, great, great grandson of, of David. He is this figure that stands out, there's a lot of Bible that's dedicated to Jehoshaphat. So there's, it would take really almost a course study on kings, and we would probably dedicate a lot to this guy's life and to his lineage being the son of Asa. But we got to pick this up real quick. His father was like most of us. The preponderance of his life was good. He had a few points in his life where King Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, jumped back and forth between two mindsets. He lived for the Lord, but under pressure, or when he got relaxed, he jumped into a different mindset and made some alliances that was indicative that he wasn't trusting God. So he trusted God with all of his heart. We're talking about Jehoshaphat's father. Trusted the Lord with all of his heart for most of the battles that are in situations and decisions that he made that are recorded in the Bible. But there was a time where he signed agreements and he made decisions that uh, he was rebuked for. And at one time, he even went into a rage because he hated accountability. Because he probably saw most of his life was right. Why are you picking on me for a small portion of my decision making that is not aligning up with my purpose, my destiny, my design? So King Asa was a good man, a great father. He is a man that honored the Lord, that took down sinful high places. This is Jehoshaphat's dad. But he did jump back and forth between two mindsets. And really, as you develop your leadership and get your reputation for loving the Lord, serving the Lord, giving your life for his purpose, one of the early and ongoing tests of your heart and hopes of the Lord in your life is to eradicate the duality 
of mindsets in your leadership, meaning that I love the Lord for the most part and I make my decisions based on truth, but under certain pressure points, <coughs> I'll jump to the other system. And so that's really what's going on. You, you're not at North Central unless you're fundamentally a good person with your eyes aiming in the right direction, your life and your confession and your desires and your decisions for the most part have been positive or you wouldn't be in this room. But we really are down to this question for the rest of our life. Is it about preponderance or, or lordship? And preponderance means like, well, most of my life fits with that scheme and that paradigm, but not all of it. And so the Lord is going to frustrate you, knock on the door of your heart. He's going to put little traps and tests in front of you until that duality is healed. Until where all of your mindset under any situation, until you're participating in the bigger game. Now, when I talk about the bigger game, here's what I'm talking about. If you play the bigger game, you'll play the better game. So the, the game that we all have to play, it's our assignment, it's our calling in life. I don't mean a game as in it's a joke. I mean, a, I mean your assignment. It's, your, it's the purpose of your life. It's the, it's the competition against the forces of darkness that your assignment is to win. If you're in that game, it's very easy to be lost in the pressure of the, of the smaller game that you lose sight of the bigger game. So I talk about the bigger game. If you play the bigger game and settle the bigger issues, I promise you'll play the better game. So the bigger game has to do with your reaction. And oh, let me back up here. So the kings, when you're studying kings, it really is these major thematic moments that really are huge indicative moments or definitions of how they view life. It's, there is some nitty gritty when you study the kings, but issues of trust and fear and right and wrong really is woven throughout all of these narratives of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah. So this is no different. I'll give you a little taste because we are ripping through time here. So Jehoshaphat, he loved the Lord, but he had modeled for him a life that at some points jump between the two systems. So when I talk about that, Asa trusted the Lord in these battles, but in this battle over here, he made an alliance with an earthly king because he could not trust God to win this particular battle. So he defaulted and behaved like the world around him. So I'm talking about jumping between two systems. When Asa was about to die, it says he got a disease in his feet and it says he didn't seek the Lord, he sought a physician. And so it was kind of the theme of Asa that in some areas of his life, Jehoshaphat's dad, he would always go back to this way of thinking and abandon really trust in God. So what does that look like for our life moving forward? What's that look like on a day to day? So Jehoshaphat, the son of King Asa, he loved the Lord and he was my favorite, what I call theocrat or a theocratic leader, a leader that governed um, a society. He was a civic figure, but was driven by his obligation and duty and belief in God or the Lord. He was a theocrat, not a Republican or Democrat. He trusted in the Lord to lead his nation. It's a good kind of leader. So Jehoshaphat, he transformed the land. He became king. Let's go to chapter 20. Um, man, there's a lot of text here we could cover. Um, tore down idols, and he 
transformed the nation through teaching. So what he did is he sent teachers in chapter 19. It says in verse 4 that Jehoshaphat, he went into all of the land from Beersheba, the hill country. He brought them back to the Lord. He said to the judges, consider what you are doing, for you do not judge a man for what he has done or who he is with. He sent teachers throughout all the land, teaching the tribes, transforming them through the teaching of truth. It wasn't just repentance that he was after, tearing down the idols. He was transforming, which is powerful when you think about it. You're in this setting. You are being transformed through the power of teaching. And I don't care what you do in this life. You will transform the people around you, the soil that you stand on because of your capacity to teach, your ability to transform and transfer from the proven life to the promising life what is true. So teaching is at the core of the national revival of Judah. So Jehoshaphat was teaching, he was transforming, he was repenting. But in chapter 20, we see the big game, the bigger game. And that's why he wanted, or why he played the better game. The bigger game is something we're all connected to. We're all obligated to. Some of you are in business. Some of you are in youth ministry. Some of you in education, accounting, um, all of these wonderful things. All of us have something specific, but we are all connected to what I call the bigger, the bigger game. I want to show you three things about Jehoshaphat real quick that indicated he was winning at the bigger game so he was able to be effective at whatever assignment or the smaller game that he was assigned to. Chapter 20 says this. Let's go to verse 1 of chapter 20. It came about after this that the sons of Moab, the sons of Amnon came together. Some with the Meunites came to make war against Jehoshaphat. Now two types of battles you're going to face. Solicited battles and unsolicited battles. Whenever you see somebody get, gets arrested for something... They get nailed for they were soliciting a prostitute. Or this was an unsolicited attack. So half my life, I have really put myself in that position by foolish decision making. And I have solicited the reaction or the presence of the enemy because I was acting the fool. But understand, if you love the Lord... You're going to go through many unsolicited attacks in which the enemy just nails you, spots you, and is after you because you're living a faithful life. you got to win at the unsolicited and the solicited attacks. you got to know both. In this case, Jehoshaphat, it was an unsolicited, unwarranted attack of the enemy. It says that they came and uh, um, Jehoshaphat, verse number 3 Jehoshaphat was afraid and turned his attention to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all of Judah. Our life is oftentimes reduced to this narrative right there. What's the first thing you do when you are afraid? Do you turn to the Lord, the bigger game, have you fundamentally settled in your life that when I feel afraid, I turn to the Lord to seek the Lord, or do I start defaulting to this other mindset that I carry with me? Are there certain battles or certain intensities of life that cause me to default to this other thing that I do? If you play the bigger game, you'll play the better game. What's the bigger game? 
Anything you are afraid of, anything that comes against you, whether it's solicited or unsolicited, you turn to the Lord and seek the Lord. It's amazing. You think this is a highly educated, sophisticated king that needs more complicated instruction. Remember when Naaman had leprosy and the nameless servant of the Lord went to Naaman and told Naaman to dip seven times in the Jordan River? And the Bible says that Naaman, who was a powerful political figure, was in a rage. He was upset. He was offended that something so simple could solve his problem. I need something more comp. I'm a smart person. Don't tell me my problem is that simple. I'm educated. I got my master's. I'm getting a PhD. I deal with smart people, which means complicated people at times. So I need the answers. Don't give me some kindergarten solution. Don't tell me to go dip in the Jordan seven times in the river, take a bath. I got leprosy. And the nameless servant of the Lord says to Naaman, had he told you something difficult, you would have done it. But because he said dip seven times, it's basically too simple for your sophisticated brain. And that's the collision of walking with the Lord. You mean to tell me that Jehoshaphat succeeded in life because when he got afraid, he sought the Lord? That was the secret sauce of Jehoshaphat? It was turning to the Lord every time you are afraid. Then he called the people to a fast. Number two, so the first thing about the bigger game if you win at the bigger game, you play this game, you'll play a better game in all, all of your individual assignments. Number one, every time you're afraid, you seek the Lord or you don't seek the Lord. <laughs> it comes down to that. And so Jehoshaphat sought the Lord. Here's the second thing he did. Verse 5, then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah in Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court, and he said, Oh, Lord, the God of our fathers. He's with people. He lifts his voice. Are you not God in the heavens? And are you not the ruler over the kingdoms of all nations? Power and might are in your hand so that no one can stand against you. Did you not, oh God, drive out the inhabitants of this land? before? And he's talking to himself. He's declaring the truth of God, but he's really declaring it to himself. He's coaching up his heart. He's speaking to his mind so he doesn't default to this other duality when he's under pressure. So he's declaring that's why worship, it just arrests the free fall of fear. And prayer, it just stops it, it catches us midair. And so Jehoshaphat is declaring this in front of the people, power and might are in your hand. Did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it to the descendants of Abram, your friend forever? Now friends, I'm not being disrespectful of the word. Hear, hear me clearly. Most people read that and they go, blah, 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 blah. It sounds like a thousand other verses in the Bible. It's just kind of your standard label on the back of the bottle that nobody reads. It doesn't really ring because we're like Naaman. It can't be that simple. It can't be that. It's got to be complicated. But here's what happens next. The Bible says that 
Jehoshaphat is declaring this. We will stand before the, verse nine, should evil come upon us, the sword or judgment or pestilence or famine. And here is the key to Jehoshaphat. This phrase is seen in other portions of Jehoshaphat's life and writings about him. It says, we will stand before this house and before you. We will come to this place. We will declare this truth every time evil, the sword, judgment, pestilence, the environment, things beyond our control, famine, anything that comes against us, if it's an unsolicited attack from some wicked enemy with a sword or if it's God breathing down on us through the environment of famine and pestilence and drought, every time we, we, we will stand before this house and before you. Here's the second thing about the bigger game. Number one is, when you are afraid, do you seek the Lord? Number two is this. Are you leading people to the Lord or to yourself? Are you leading people to the Lord or to yourself? Jehoshaphat brought the people of God into this setting and situated them. We will stand before the Lord. We will come to this place. I'm not leading people to my throne, my gifts, my talent, my power, my prestige, my aura, my persona. The big game, I don't care what your assignment is in this life. If you play the bigger game, if you will turn to the Lord every time you're afraid for the rest of your life, every time you feel like time's running out, you're trapped, tomorrow I'm dead, I've procrastinated. Now I have insomnia. Now I eat and watch TV too much. Isn't that a beautiful formula? It's, it's procrastination. It's insomnia. It's too much food and it's television. You know what that's code for? College. It's code for PhD. <laughs> Procrastination, insomnia, overeating, and television. Can I get an amen? Yeah. Okay. That wasn't a hearty amen, but it's like, okay, nailed. Now watch this. We're, we're, we're wrapping right here. Jehoshaphat. Pestilence, sword, whatever. He led people. Let's get a piano player up here if we can or somebody on the platform. Now watch this. Here we go. You got to lead people to the Lord, not to yourself for the rest of your life. You got to drive people into his presence. Not simply display your power and your talent. Number three. So the Lord gives him instruction very quickly. Um, there's an answer to the prayer and there's instruction in the answer. Verse 16, tomorrow go down against them, and behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. It's a great little, great little town, Z-I-Z. -Z. And you will find them at the end of the valley in front of the wilderness. You will need to fight in this battle. You need not fight this battle. Station yourself, stand and see the salvation of the Lord. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out to face him, for the Lord is with you. Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. The Levites from the sons of the Kohathites 
and of the sons of the Korathites, heights, stood up to praise the Lord, God of Israel, with a very loud voice. Here's a third component of the big game. If you play the bigger game, you'll win. You'll play the better game. Number one is every time you're afraid for the rest of your life, you got to seek the Lord. Number two is you got to lead the people to the Lord, not yourself. And number three is this. Always lean into worship the moment it begins. Okay, three people got that. Now I'm speaking to a worship-centered university like no other place in the United States. But I'm telling you, I'm, I'm talking about far beyond this room. The secret sauce to Jehoshaphat is that when he got afraid, he sought God in a split second. Second thing he did is he led people to the Lord, not to himself. And the third thing is he leaned into worship the second it began. This was the biggest shift in my life. We, let's stand together across the room. Man, I sat in chapel at the university. I went to the college. Back row, hat on, backwards. If I felt respectful, I'd wear my hat straight. I never lifted my hand, my voice, squat, nothing. I just was trying to get to basketball practice. Nice people up there. I'm not them. I'm self-conscious. And the shift that happened my second year of college was, first of all, meeting Mrs. H. And I was studying to be a youth pastor. And she says, you're going in the ministry, right? And I said, yeah. She goes, can I ask you a question? Yeah. She goes, how come you don't worship? If, if, if you're like, gonna, if we're going to be in the ministry, shouldn't you, be a, shouldn't you worship? I, uh, I found out how much I loved her. Because my hands went up. <laughs> I surrender to you, Lord, and to her. Oh. <laughs> but now watch this. It took me a while. I mean, we would sing these old kind of corny songs. With my hands lifted up and my heart filled with praise. <laughs> and this is what I would do. is say, everybody lift up your hands. And I would do this. From the pocket, I would lift my hand up. I did. That's about all the Lord would get from me. And the greatest shift of my life happened. Not when I entered vocational ministry, but when I entered with all my heart his presence. And every time it happened in my second year of college, and it has never stopped, the second worship begins. I've leaned into it the, the moment it begins. Now, I, yes, we live in a state of worship. Yes, worship is my life. It's my behavior. It's all of that. But there comes a moment when the people of God fall on their face and they enter in and they raise a loud voice. And the greatest pivot of my life, I've played this bigger game my whole life. And the Lord has helped me play the better game because I've tried to seek the Lord the moment I'm afraid. I've tried to lead people to the Lord, not to myself. And I have leaned into worship the moment it begins, whether the worship is lousy and I can't stand the style. I'm like you, I love style. Come to get in my playlist, man. I got some Stephen Curtis Chapman on there that it just blow you out. Some Sonic Flood. 
It's all style points because those are markers for where I was touched by the Lord. So here's what I encourage you. You want to play the better game? You got to play the bigger game. The bigger game, the bigger game is where the winning is at, friends. You will be the best at what you do for the rest of your life. If you will seek God every time you're afraid. If you will lead people to the Lord, not yourself. And if you will lean into worship the moment it begins in any setting for the rest of your life. Jesus, we love you today. We thank you. Can we lift up our hands for a second, Jesus? We just pray, God, as this wonderful Wednesday chapel comes to a close. God, thank you for our friends that are here. God, they just made the room more alive. God, thank you for these wonderful leaders and friends from Eden Prairie. God, I pray over them, Lord, that you would just do a great work in that church, Lord, and send revival and measures, God, that they never saw coming. Now, Father, we pray over this house, over this this army, God, that is going to water the earth, God, out of this room, God, for generations to come, Lord. Yet we are ready for your return, Jesus, at any moment of our life. So, Father, we commit in this room that we are not going to have a this dual mindset, God, that for most of what we do, we trust God. But if the sword or the famine or the pestilence is at a certain level, we will go over here and make alliances with the world the way that the world, and we would look nothing different and no different than them. God, we pray as best as I can with your strength, Jesus. I'm going to have one mindset for the rest of my life. I'm going to turn to you when I'm afraid. I'm going to lead people to you, not to my gifts. And Lord, I'm going to worship you the second it begins for the rest of my life, God. There'll be no delay. There'll be no gap, God. And Lord, I pray that you would help every one of us in this room to win at the big game, the bigger game, God, so that we will play the better game of all of our assignments in Jesus' awesome name. Amen. These altars, what we're going to do today is we have um, a faculty uh, staff meeting in here at 12 today. So Wednesday prayer is only going to go from now till right about 12, about 20 minutes. And then we have to make the room available um, for our faculty staff meeting that's taking place in here. But if you can hang at these altars, seek the Lord for a little while. These altars are open for you. We love you, man. Keep up on the homework. Finish well this semester. We love you. Let's spend some time with the Lord for a few minutes if you can. Thank you, Lord.